Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge podcast. On this episode, our guest is Representative Matthew Bundy, who is also a government teacher at Mountain Home High School. He's one of two teacher lawmakers in Idaho. I sat down with the other, Representative Sonia Galaviz, a few weeks ago, if you want to go back and listen to that episode. This week, Bundy shares his thoughts on balancing teaching and politics and reflects on the session and its implications for education. Here's our conversation. All right. So, Representative Bundy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, I appreciate the invitation, and it's always great great uh, opportunity to talk about education, so thank you. Yeah, for sure. So, to start with, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background so where you grew up, if you're from Idaho, and when and why did you become a teacher? Well, first thing is I've lived in Idaho longer than I've lived anywhere my entire life, but I have had kind of the circuitous path to get here. Uh, I was born and raised in, in Ogden, Utah, and my dad was a school teacher and my mom worked in the school district. And um, then I went to uh, Weber State College and finished at the University of Utah while I was in Air Force ROTC. And I took a couple years out of there to go live in Germany for a couple years, and that's that's always a fun time too. So, um, but when I finished University of Utah through Air Force ROTC, then I started my, my adventure in the United States Air Force. And I initially started, I went to flight school, and I started initially as a B-52 air crew. And so my, my career started back I guess it's pretty easy to figure out that, uh, that I've been around for a while. So I, I started in the Air Force in the mid-80s. And so what my, the beginning of my Air Force career was the Cold War Soviet Union, and I was doing nuclear deterrence uh, duties with B-52 bombers. And I loved it. I was in California and Spokane, and uh, we did a lot of work out in the, um, in the Pacific area. I did quite a few deployments out to Guam. I was in Guam for Desert Shield in the Gulf War, and then I transitioned into the B-1 bomber because uh, it was new or sleeker, and it was it was a it was a good opportunity. And then we lived in North Dakota and Texas a couple times, and then I did some headquarters duty at Offutt Air Force Base uh, as a planner. And then I came in 1999. I came to Mount Home, Idaho, with the Air Force and served my last little over four years uh, with the Air Force flying B-1s and doing some treaty duty. And uh, I deployed with the 34th Bomb Squadron right after 9-11. So I started Cold War and I ended with deployments uh, over to Afghanistan to fly sorties in Afghanistan. Then I retired as Lieutenant Colonel. And it's kind of a, it's, a, it's a quick story because when I was in college, I was kind of torn on if I wanted to go into education or if I wanted to go into the Air Force and fly. And so my dad was an educator, so I just said, hey, what do you think? And, you know, sometimes parents give good advice and sometimes they don't. But this time he kind of, he, he gave me a really good nugget. He said, you know, he said, if you go right into teaching, you won't be able to do the Air Force. But if you do the Air Force first, you'll be able to go into education at a later point. And so I entered the Air Force thinking I would do five to ten years and then, then go back to Utah. But just the way things worked out, um, I stayed in the Air Force uh, made rank, had some great, wonderful opportunities. We got to Idaho. We just loved Idaho, so we, we stayed here. My wife was actually working at the junior high, and I retired and got a job at the high school, and we've been here for 25 years. So you've been teaching for 25 years? 
No, my last four and a half years were in the Air Force. I oh, started okay. teaching in 2004. So we've been in Mountain Home for 25 years, but I've been uh, at the high school here for about 20 years. This mm -hmm. next year will be my 20th year in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So I've been fortunate. I had, I've had two great careers. Just been very, very lucky. How did you know when you were ready to leave the Air Force and, and be in the classroom? <laughs> uh, the, the military, as much as I loved it, it does have its um, times that are very trying. The When I got to the 20-year point, um, I, I had an opportunity to go to some our command positions and look at some, some higher rank, but we, we kind of did the math, and I'd been gone for close to five years out of the 20, and so I, I had a daughter in college and I had a kid graduating from high school and another younger son. And, and we decided as much as we love the air force, it, we had, I'd been gone enough. And so the, the, the opportunity to um, get into the high school and to set down our roots for what's been the rest of our lives per se, uh, was a great opportunity for us. So I would go in the air force again. I love serving in the military, but for, for us, uh, 20 years seemed like a good time to to try a try another 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 adventure a new adventure so you said your wife teaches at the junior high she she was the, the very sweet front office lady nice so she uh she was at the junior high for a while then she moved to a local charter school mm -hmm. and then she retired from education well, five or six years ago so Mm -hmm. uh, based on the fact that she was in the school system, I got to know a lot of the folks and I actually did my student teaching right, right as I was finishing up the air force and the transition right into a, a full-time job where I started teaching and I coached baseball and basketball and I stayed involved in coaching until I got involved in local, uh, local governmental issues and positions. So I, I've been on the city council. I've had some work with urban renewal. And I've, I've kind of been in the, the public sector of government for about past eight years, about eight to 10 years. So when you did your career switch, did you have to go back to school to get a teaching degree or how did that work? Well, I was fortunate. I had projected what I wanted to do post-retirement. And when I was at, off at Air Force Base, they had a um, Peru State College had a night program where you could get your certification. I had a degree uh, in political science history, and also I, I speak German, so I'm, I'm certified in all those subjects. And I had almost finished it, but then uh, we got transferred out here for some opportunities at Mountain Home. And so I actually finished my teacher certification courses while I was in the Air Force in night school at Boise State. In there, they have a graduate certificate there you can get for licensure. So. I did my um, teaching classes at Peru State College in Nebraska and here at Boise State. And then since I've been teaching, I, I pursued my educational specialist degree in educational leadership at University of Idaho. So I, was, I continued my, my process. Was that a master's degree? Well, I already had a master's degree, so it was an ed specialist, an education specialist degree. Okay, gotcha. And so in your 20 years of teaching, what classes have you primarily taught? I have primar primarily taught American government. I've also taught psychology and I've taught history and I've also taught uh, German. Okay. 
And do you have a favorite subject that you like to teach? I do. I really enjoy teaching American government and the civics aspect of it, the ability to just hear the thoughts and the ideas because I teach all seniors. So these students are, you know, 17, 18 years old. They're for the most part, pretty well versed in what's going on. Uh, their, their literacy rates are, are great. So basically what we're doing is we're practicing our, our civic skills of engagement, of uh, polite uh, discussions. And, I, and, I, and I, there's a phrase I use so that we can avoid emotion because a lot of the things that you talk about in today's world are emotional. And so I'll just kind of preface things. Well, let's have an academic look at, and this, the students have been very, very respectful. And, and they, they, and I hope that I'm conveying the ability to agree, but not be disagreeable. And so that they feel like they can express an opinion that may not be um, the opinion of everybody else in the classroom, but they're able to discover how they feel. And I like to use Socratic questioning where you question students in a way that allows them to understand why they think a certain thing so that they're able to explore why do I like this better and why don't I like this? And so I think Socratic questioning is, is a skill that a lot of teachers use that's very effective in allowing students to understand why they have certain opinions. Mm -hmm. I love that you practice with your students this idea of civic discussions and conversation. And that can be easier said than done in real life. So in your work as a lawmaker, how do you try to do that and make sure that you're helping to perpetuate civic discussions on the House floor, for example? Yeah, I think there's similarities and differences because over the course of the year, uh, and I usually teach anywhere from, depending upon how big the senior class is, 170 to 190 kids a year. But over time, you're able to develop I think a relationship that, that you build some trust. And so students understand that, that I trust what they say and, and that I develop that they can trust, you know, I trust what they say and vice versa. And I think in the legislature, that's still very, very possible, but can be more difficult. And, it, and it's hard, especially with the turnover. I'm in my second term. Uh, we had a, a half the house turnover. So basically we are trying to develop the relationships that will allow us to come to a consensus, allow us to move people in a direction on an idea, or sometimes even we move on an idea. I think even at the at our level, uh, at the state legislature, um, it, it's it's about relationships. And I remember when I was on the city council, when I first started on the city council, we had a new city councilman, and he asked me basically what my advice was. And I said, in my opinion, government is not entirely, but a lot of how we um, handle issues in government and local policy is through developing relationships. And so I, I try to do that at the house level. I try to interject a little bit of personality or uh, maybe making issues a little bit more real life for folks on where you can do it all the time. You can't do the same thing all the time, but on certain budgets, I'll try to incorporate something about what that department does or when I'm putting forward um, a personal bill, I try to relate it to specific instances. I did a bill for a couple of years ago for um, 
of occupation specialties so that they can work across borders. Basically, they can telehealth. If a patient goes across the state line, they can telehealth. And if you have an experience of why, why the provider came to me for this law, and why we need this law and how it affects the people that they're dealing with, I think that can help people gain a personal relationship to an idea or to a bill. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you talk about this idea that relationships are the foundation of civic, civil conversations. So how do you build relationships with people who think maybe completely different from you? whether that's someone in the other party or someone in your own party who's on one end of the spectrum or the other, how do you find common ground with somebody? That, that's a great question. And I think we're seeing a little bit of the state level, a little bit of the local levels, and uh, maybe we're seeing it more at the national level because it's, it has a bigger platform. But uh, the idea of agreeing to disagree, you, you have to come to, the, in my opinion, the common understanding of what what the issue is and why you disagree. I think a lot of times, um, for good or bad, group A, group B, however many groups we are, is is it's we have to allow people. Once again, it's my opinion to to be able to express their ideas outside of a bubble, and 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 you know based on the fact that you can you can read my bio. It's, um, I, I'm a Republican, and so even in today's world, sometimes when you use Ronald Reagan's idea of if you agree with me 80% of the time, you're on my you're on my side. I don't know that we're there right now in today's political world. It seems to be an all or nothing, and I think if we if we go for this world where we're we're agreeing on the vast majority of things, and then we differ on some things, we can still work together. But but when you look at all of the different pressures on us there seems to almost be absolutes anymore it's like we agree on everything or we don't and, and that's one thing that i really try to address is that we're agreeing on many major issues and there are certain things that we may have a different opinion on based on personal experience or personal ideas and, and that should be okay So let's come back to the start of your journey as a lawmaker. What made you want to become a House representative? <laughs> That's a great question. And it's it's almost like, oh, I don't know if it's a, I've always kind of felt the need for public service. Uh, I was uh, in high school, I was not politically inclined. Um, I didn't run for office. I did have a lot of friends and I did a lot of fun things, but it just wasn't where I thought. And not to say that, that, you know, there's a lot of folks that run for office in high school and college and they become legislators and it's great. It's in their DNA. Mine wasn't, mine was more of a, just a desire to serve. I mean, that's probably why I ended up going in. Cause if you go back to the, the early 1980s, when I started my military process, it wasn't particularly popular to join the military. Uh, we were still recovering from the, the Vietnam hangover. And so when I decided to go through officer training, I got a lot of, well, there's there anything else you can do. And that's why I struggled with my decision on what to do. So as I went through the military, I really enjoyed the public service aspect of it. And that's why I think I was, uh, and I was always a youth coach and I was involved in a lot of things, even outside of the military when I was in the military. And then I started to teach and I loved it. And then as you kind of get to know people in the community, 
uh, some folks came in and said, hey, here's this opportunity in the community. Oh, my life's just been up. <laughs> um, there's some opportunities in the community. How would you like to get involved? And so I started to get involved in some committees with chamber of commerce type of things, um, economic development. And then a city councilman had to resign a year early. So they asked me to, if I wanted to be um, on city council, you know, as a replacement for a year. And I found that I, I, I had a, I was pretty good at it. I was able to figure issues out. And so then I ran for election and won that. And then a seat opened up when you know, there were some, uh, when Senator Brackett retired a couple of years ago, and that kind of caused a juggle. And there was a seat open and a couple of folks came and said that they thought that I might be a good fit for that seat. And so it's just, uh, it's been, I've been very fortunate that it's fallen into place and that the right people have come and talked to me about, about these opportunities. And it sounds like that encouragement is key, having a couple people who believe in you and say, you should do this. It does. It, it is. It's a hard decision to to run for, for office. It's You really put yourself out there. And most of us, um, I don't know about most of us, but, but some of us aren't real comfortable with putting yourself on display all the time. And, and it's hard. Uh, I like to give speeches. I think I'm pretty good at giving speeches and I like to connect with people. But when you run for office, it's totally different for that. Uh, because, you, you know, you run for election and people said, oh, that was, you won that easily, but you still have a lot of people who would have gone a different direction. And that's kind of the nature of politics is people vote for you and against you and, or they vote for someone else, which is also a way to look at it too. So it's, uh, it's a good way to stay humble, I'll tell you that is uh, when you open up your email box in the morning and you see a lot of people like what's going on and, and other people have suggestions on how you could do it better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm curious about how you balance being a lawmaker with being a teacher. So you have to miss months for the session, right? So do, I do. You, do you get like a long-term sub and... I do. I do kind of a... I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah, just go ahead. Explain how that, how that works. I do. I take leave. And I, this year we were very fortunate. We had a student teacher in the building in the fall. In fact, last spring they, they called me when I was down at the legislature and said, hey, wouldn't you be interested in taking a student teacher in the fall? And I said, no, not because I didn't want to work with the student teachers because I wanted to be in the classroom. Because <laughs> a lot of times when you have a student teacher, you're not in the classroom as much. So, so the student teacher worked with a different teacher and, and, and the teacher they worked with is awesome. So this teacher got some great training and they finished up their certification and just kind of moved in and took over my class for a few months. And then I came back after the session ended and I finished up. I come off of leave and go back into the classroom. Mm -hmm. So it's hard. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like, um, you know, the, the students, you bond with them and then you're gone for a little while and then you come back and, and you do, you pick up quite quickly, but you do miss some things. And that's the good thing about living in a smaller town like Mountain Homes. When I come home on the weekend, I would see students at, Albertsons or I would see him at the restaurant or I would have the ability to go to a, a basketball game and see a lot of the students. So I still still kept in contact with them and and I would still monitor. We do we use Canvas as our online forum for assignments and I would still do some of the grading and I'd go look at the discussion boards and every week I would do I would call it legislative fun. I would post something I was doing in the legislature that they could go into Canvas and see a little video or pictures and things like that. So and I actually did an art contest 
where some students won, they did some first, uh, some Bill of Rights posters and I posted them and I took them in and I put them up on the wall on the Capitol and sent pictures of them from the Capitol. So I've done some things like that, but it's, it's fun. Um, and I'm wondering too how your experiences as a lawmaker inform your teaching, especially for a government class. You gave some examples right there of kind of blending the two occasionally, but but what else? What else do you do to kind of bring the two experiences together? <laughs> I've actually got something right behind me. Okay. Because I when I got back, um, I showed them a segment of the floor debate. And it was a debate that I knew that there was some opposition in the bill that I introduced. And so I, I showed them how I introduced the bill. And then I, I let them watch the debate and then my closing argument. And then I said, and so here's my, here's my papers. I said, so their assignment was, as you're going, I said, I want you to take a look at how I present, take a look at the bill and give me observations and if you think I need it, go ahead and go ahead and give me some ideas on how I could have done a better job. And it was needless to say, they know me and not the people that debated against the bill. So they took my side, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> but then when I started to go through it, and you might've noticed here, I got a, a few, you use your hands a lot when you talk. You, <laughs> and and they, they talked about, and that was a funny day because it was the, one of the first bills I did. And I usually have water on my desk so that I don't have uh, any scratches in my voice when I start talking. And I had a few of them mention your voice was scratchy at the beginning. You should either have some water and it was really, and I'm going through here and thinking, these guys are paying attention. They're watching what I do and they're giving me really good advice. And so I try to do some things like that where I bring some of those in there. But the big thing, um, and I almost, if I'm honest, it's, I almost sometimes feel like I get more from them than they do for me. Mm -hmm. And because I get to talk to 170 to 180 kids a day about what they're going through, about what they think and feel. And I, and I try to give my input and, and I try to equate what they're feeling to what I'm doing and all those other things. But it's really good, I think, for and I highly recommend it when I carry the teacher's budget, other education bills, that other legislators visit schools. And you do. And it's good to visit schools, but it's not the same as the interaction the teacher gets. But I do think that uh, if, you know, with education being our a big, huge part of the budget and a very, very hot topic item, that it's beneficial when um, legislators come into classrooms. And I remember before I was uh, on city council, um, before I was involved in politics, I would have local state senators or state representatives come. And I would tell them, they would say, do you have any advice? And I'll say, after watching it happen a couple of times, I say, here's my advice. You're going to do, in essence, the same thing six times, but you have to do it and convince every single group that it's the only time that you've done it. And when I tell them that, at the end of the day, they go, oh, I see where you're going with that. Because some of them, on like third or fourth hour, they'd say, well, I've already talked about that. And I'd say, well, that was in first hour. Mm -hmm. And so, and I think that's what, what teachers understand is that they, it's, it's, even though I, and that's the thing with government is even though I have the same topic five or six times, 
the way that the students interact with that topic is different every single time they do it. And so I get to see so many different sides and so many different issues that I think it really, it really helps me. And, and, and I'm not saying that this is better or worse, but for me personally, the ability to interact with all of these different ideas, these young ideas and these, uh, the future leaders of, of Idaho and the communities, um, it's, it's really been a good thing for me to keep my, just, just, it's, I've just really enjoyed it. I've gotten a tremendous amount out of the interaction with, with 17 and 18 year old students. Mm-hmm. So just out of curiosity, um, you mentioned a bill debate that you showed them a little bit of it. What bill was that for? <laughs> um, it was, we'll just leave it. It was a good bill. <laughs> it was so, a yeah. good bill? <laughs> it was a good bill. All right. Fair enough. Um, so it sounds like you think your teaching makes you a better lawmaker. And I'm sure for your students, it's makes it more engaging for them to have a teacher they actually know and see every day who's intimately familiar with all these processes of writing a bill, introducing it, um, having debates on it, all the different steps that come next. So that's really neat. Um, so let's talk about the 2023 session a little bit. In terms of education specifically, what do you think are some of the biggest wins and biggest losses that came out of this session? I, uh, I was, I on JFAC, on the Appropriations Committee, I was involved primarily in the finance part of it, you know, for me having my hands in, in the, in the ideas. And I think the, the fact that we were able to do some pay increases for the young teachers, so pushes, puts us closer to the top 10 beginning pay, it allowed us to try to make this more competitive with some surrounding states. I think that was a good thing. I think some of the, um, and that's focusing on the teachers. Uh, there was one bill in there that, that I think was good, not because it presented anything new. It was the, the parents' rights bill. You know, because parents have always had the opportunity to come into classrooms. Parents have always had the opportunity to review curriculum. Parents have had all of these options available to them. And when I was talking to, uh, education stakeholders, they supported this bill, not because it created something new, but it created a concrete area that parents knew that they could do these things. And so I think it's, I think it's great that parents now know, uh, and a lot of them did, that they can be as, as involved in the educational process of their child as they want. Some are pretty hands-off and others really like to be involved, and that's great. And every so often, and I love it when it happens. I have a parent that wants to come in and sit in on a lesson, not because they're opposed to anything going on. They just want to see what's going on. They just like to know what their kids are doing. And so we'll have students, we'll have parents come into our classes once in a while. And, and we always are always welcoming and I've got a special place for them to sit and be comfortable and it, and it works out well. So I think that was a good thing. Uh, the launch program, I think for high school graduates to go into in-demand careers, I think is going to benefit Idaho. Uh, the uh, expansion of the, um, it's the program where, where parents can get a grant so they can buy software or computer gear, empowering parents. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good program mm -hmm. where we give some folks the ability to update technologies that they may not be able to afford at home um, or that they might not be able to have access to. Because in a lot of the districts that I've talked to, 
um, parents will call up and say, this is what I need for my empowering parent grant. And the school districts will give them ideas on an outside tutoring agency or some software that's available to them or some other things. So, so I think that's been a good thing. I do also like the idea. Uh, I was fortunate because of where I was in my life that uh, I was financially able to support myself during student teaching. Uh, but I have um, my, my son and my daughter-in-law both gone through student teaching. I think the idea that we could potentially give stipends to student teachers, I think is great. Because the universities tell all these student teachers, and I've had a, two, a few student teachers, and they always tell me you can't have a job outside of this. But the, real, the reality is that most of them still have to because they need to pay rent. They need to, all those kind of things. So I think that's another good thing. Um, the financial literacy, I think, is a good thing. Um, and when you talk to economics teachers, a lot of school teachers, I think these things were out there. But sometimes we just need to formalize what we're doing so that when a parent comes in and says, what's your financial literacy requirement? We can say, this is it, and this is the curriculum we use. So I think that was, that was a good thing also. Um, I was pleased that we were able to fund it. it. It's hard to, you know, do everything, but I think we were able to give our um, community colleges, our two-year colleges, and our four-year institutions good financial support this time, and we can... And then we had some, uh, we, we ended up with kind of a compromise on the permanent building fund. And I think we're going to try to see what we can do next year to create a little bit more of a, a, a more defined, we went with kind of a percentage this time, which doesn't benefit the smaller universities as much as it does the larger colleges. So I think permanent building fund is something that we can always take a look at it and make sure that we're getting it right. And we can't always project that we're going to continue, continue to have these surpluses. So I know that a lot of districts out there are putting some money into their rainy day funds. And I think that's smart. Uh, and, and I'm, and I'm, I'm confident that the Idaho economy is going to be resilient and strong, but you can never project a continued, um, a continued economy that's moving the way that ours is. So I think those were a lot of the great things. Okay. So what about losses? Were there anything that, you were disappointed in from this session in terms of how it would impact education? Um, you know, no, no world is, nothing's perfect. And so I think coming out of the session, I've tended to focus on all the things that we were able to get done. Uh, I think there, I think sometimes we want to make sure that we make sure that teachers and students know that they're appreciated make sure that the students and the teachers and the families uh, and school board members know that they have the support. And, and, and I think sometimes we have certain things that are challenged and I sometimes look at a challenge as the ability for me to show why what I'm doing is the right thing. And I think that it, across the board, in most cases, that education was able to show that they're doing things for the betterment of their communities, for the betterment of the students. And so that's right. I, I think that, uh, um, you know, there were some things that were said on the floor that I think maybe were said in the heat of the moment. And, and, but anyway, I think, I think that we're, uh, being supportive of the learning process is important. And, and I just think that's a, a good thing. Okay. And looking forward to the 2024 session, do you have any hopes and goals in mind for what you want to see? come onto the floor and, and be discussed or passed? 
Um, I think that we've got the new funding, uh, uh, the potential for a new funding formula. Uh, if I were to tie, I don't know that it's a disappointment, but the, the, the transition from enrollment-based funding to average daily attendance funding is going to cause a little bit of a, a financial issue. And, and I get it. You know, we went into the enrollment because of the COVID emergency and the COVID emergency is gone. So we're going back to the scenario we had before. But I've been take, talking with some major education stakeholders in ways that could tweak the ADA so that, you know, right now it's 0 0.5 or 1. You know, there, there could be some alterations in there if the students won't be able to make it to the first part of class. And this is a bigger deal, in my opinion, at the high school level where we have a little bit more um, student movement. And we still have good attendance, but students sometimes have other things that they need to do or that come up, things like that. So I think if and we can- And they've got cars and they can drive, so. They do, and they have jobs and they have all kinds of new stresses in them. Um, but the thing that I, I really had to talk to a lot of folks about is when we go to a straight ADA, I, I understand that, but that doesn't mean that when a student's not there that the learning ceases. So we do online forums, we do makeup work, we do tutoring sessions, they come in at lunch, before school, after school, so I think that's why we've been able to have this discussion to do some type of an alteration from the absolute ADA model to some type of a, uh, an ADA model that, uh, that takes into account partial attendance or if I miss a day and I'm back a day. Because when the student comes in, you know, I've either put it online for them to find in Canvas or they come in and we sit down and work on it. So, um, yeah, on a straight ADA, we're just assuming that nothing happens when they're not there, but we still need the room for 30 students, even if I only had 27 there that day. So that's why the, this, this um, working with, uh, like I say, some of the major stakeholders, I think that there's a good plan out there to give us a little bit better ADA funding model than we have. So I think long answer to short question, I apologize. That's okay. Is we need to get our, we need to get our hands around uh, what a good funding model should look like. And one that doesn't penalize small schools and one that doesn't, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things to take into account when you're talking about supporting units and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a big topic and it can feel pretty complex and wonky for a lot of people, but it is important because it affects how much money schools get and that eventually trickles down to students and can have an impact on learning. So yeah, that's going to be a really interesting issue to follow in this coming year. So we are about to move on to the lightning round. And this is something that I do with every teacher I have on my show. And I basically just ask three questions and have you um, take a minute or two to quickly respond. So before we go to that, is there anything else that you want to add about the session or about being a teacher and a lawmaker? Um, I, you know, the funny thing, well, I really enjoy doing both, but it's also difficult to do both because both of them are so engrossing of your emotions and your time. And so that's the one thing that this next year I'm going to really figure out. And I, and I, I always feel bad when I, when I, like on January 7th, when I say, well, I'm only here for a day or two before the session, they go, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> You're doing what? Mm -hmm. And so, and then I come back and, and um, 
So I don't know what I'm getting at here, other than the fact that they're both very, very much become a part of who you are. And I guess that's a good and a bad thing, but uh, um, I just really enjoy the opportunity to do both and, and try to do what I can in both, in both professions. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so lightning round, here we go. First question, what's your favorite part about being a teacher? I really like, since I only teach seniors now, I, I don't have, when I was coaching, I used to, but I really like to get to know 170 new people a year and to learn about their lives. And, um, and, and I've been teaching long enough where every so often I'll have somebody that'll come up and say, Mr. Bundy, do you remember me? And so then I have to go through this 20 years of 200 students and it's like, and, and I'll usually, I, I'll get to it. I have to run through this Rolodex and sometimes I have to, you know, 10 or 15 years off them. And then I'll remember, oh yeah, you sat right here, we, this conversation. And that's kind of the cool thing is that I've got these, this, this huge house of good memories. And so the favorite thing about teaching is creating these relationships. And then, and then when I see 10, 15 years later, and, and something we connect on a level that they feel like they can come up and talk to me and I haven't seen them for, for a decade and a half. That's, that's really fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you think about it, if you've been teaching for 20 years and have up to 170 kids every year, that's a lot of people out in the world that you've had a chance yeah. to impact. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. It's fun. All right. Question two, what has being a teacher taught you and what has been its greatest lesson for you? Well, I came into teaching after a 20 year military career. So, and I was a Lieutenant Colonel. So I kind of thought, Oh, this, I, I can do this. And, and I jokingly tell people when I walked in the room the first time, nobody stood up. It's like, okay, I'm in a different environment. But, but in my first year of teaching, there were a couple of more senior teachers and we're having a conversation and they said, it takes you a good 10 years to figure out how you want to teach or what you're doing as a teacher. And I thought, well, I've got another career. So, I'll be, I'll be fine in way less than 10 years. Well, I remember at about the 10 year point of my teaching, I remember that conversation. I said, they were right. Teaching is, it, it takes you more than a year or two to realize. I mean, you know, I love young teachers. I love their excitement. I love their, their vigor and all those things out, but it takes you a good 10 years and I'm still changing now. So that's one thing that I love about education is, uh, it, it's a continual learning process for me and the students and we do it together and I love it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a hard job. One of those where you're always learning, whether it's how to build lesson plans to how to make connections with kids to how to be adaptable on the fly. If your lesson finishes early or takes too long. So. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Last question. What advice would you give a brand new first year teacher? I would encourage them to find somebody in their department or not even necessarily in your department that you feel like you could bounce ideas off, that you can sit down with five to 15 minutes a day and say, this is what happened today. What do you think? I would really encourage, and I know that a lot of schools have an official mentor program. And a lot of times those official mentor programs turn into an actual friendship. But if that's the way it works out for a teacher, great. If not, find someone else that you connect with. And this is why I kind of like to coach in baseball so much is because we could, 
baseball is a great game to coach because you can have a conversation and coach the game at the same time. And so we had a really good, there were three or four of us that were all teachers and we coached together and we would talk about teaching in school while we were coaching baseball. And so that really worked out well for me because I coached for my first 12 years and, and it was just, so I would say find a friend, someone that you can talk with that you feel safe with. Um, cause we all make mistakes and you need to be able to run your mistakes by somebody and say, what could I have done differently or better? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I used to teach and I had some mentor teachers who were really helpful in my first few years. One of them was assigned, like you said, and she was phenomenal. She let me go over there and bother her during her prep hour every single day as I processed what happened. Um, and then my mom was a retired teacher, so she was always someone I could ask. And I've oh, had yeah. great department chairs, but yeah, I think that's a huge piece of advice. And you may or may not click with that assigned person. So like you said, you can always reach out and find the person that you know, you respect, you admire, you work well with. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for all your insight. I really appreciate it. And thank you for coming on the show. Well, I appreciate you getting hold of me and, uh, and for all you guys do for letting people that I don't know about what's going on in education. And so thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Teacher's Lounge podcast. And don't forget to go to IdahoEducationNews.org for all the latest. And if you haven't checked out our website recently, we got a makeover, so come check it out and see how it looks. Thanks for listening and have a great week.